0: hey richard gottlieb how you doing i'm doing well we got a good guest today we do indeed we are going down to auckland new zealand we are going to talk to zach pentecost who is the senior e-commerce manager at zuru he has an interesting career he came into the toy industry about four years ago out of the financial services industry so I think he made
1: a smart move.
0: But Zach, welcome. Nice to have you with us.
1: It's great to be here, Chris and Richard. Thank you very much for having me on the uh, on the podcast.
0: So speaking of your jumping in from the financial services industry, tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to Zuru and top line of what it is you do for them now.
1: As you probably picked out from my accent, I am born and raised in New Zealand. Um, I did all my schooling and my university here. I'm initially from sort of Hamilton, which is in the central North Island. I think a lot of people may not know any details around New Zealand, so we'll skip that part. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I did a little bit of work in sort of, different areas across financial services, supply chain management when I was at university. Uh, and sort of naturally as a, you know, business student uh, leaving university, you often find yourself in a area such as financial services. So I worked a little bit in share market analysis and bits like that. I was sort of working in that space a little bit, was a little bit bored, uh, was a little bit stagnant, uh, not quite the, the energy kick I think I was expecting. And then I guess I had I think Nick might've reached out to me, Nick, our CEO, um, about joining Zuru. Um, so I went up to their place when he was based in New Zealand. They had a bit of a chat to him. Uh, and then within about a month, I'd move myself over to Shenzhen, China, and was living there for sort of about three years prior to COVID or locking us down, as that's sort of where we had a lot of our, our base in terms of our certain teams around marketing and bits like that as well, where I sort of came into a role as a project manager initially. That obviously included inventor relations at the time, so managing and orchestrating our, our portfolio of over around 300 or 400 inventors. I think it was about 100 at the time when I first started, as well as sort of building up our amazon presence and our e-commerce presence from the ground up so that's sort of where we are now
0: so i want to ask you about financial services and i told you before we started talking i was going to ask you this uh, this question one of the things i do a lot of and i think richard does as well is we talk to people in the financial services business about the toy business and i always find that it is baffling to them that they, they don't understand the nature of this business. It's not a commodity business, it's a fashion business, it's a children's business. Your fate is in the hands of the whims of a seven year old. So what was the transition like? So first of all, is that something you've observed you observed as well? And second, what would you go back and tell your financial services friends about the toy industry that you've learned in the past four years?
1: The the biggest point that I try to get across is the average, I think it's the average brand life in toys is around a year. So you can consider that a success as well. So things go in and out very quickly. And so even before a year-end, from a financial reporting perspective, you can see a brand turn over 40 million, 50 million dollars in a year and then suddenly drop off the the side of the earth. A good example of that would be, you know, Zuru, we had our fidget cube that we licensed back in the day, as well as fidget spinners. And as we all know, those went very quick, up very quick, and then off the side of a cliff very quickly. And I think that's something I try to articulate is that you don't really know what the toy industry is like until you get into it. Like you guys said, it's very fashionable, it's very quick. And (laughs) I think you've captured it perfectly there, Chris, in regards to, you know, you're basing fundamental financial analysis on the consumption patterns of (laughs) (laughs) seven-year-olds
0: which are not necessarily consistent just i I, i'm sure you've picked that up but i'm just just sharing that with you as well
2: (laughs) so is there a cultural difference between working in the toy industry and working in the financial industry
1: I wasn't in the financial services industry for very long. Um, I joined Zuru quite quickly after leaving university, but I was there for a little while. It's very, I think, office-like. You sit down at your nine to five, you eat your lunch, you work away in spreadsheets. Not to say that spreadsheets aren't common in the toy industry, but compared to when I moved to Shenzhen, we would have full-on foam dart blaster wars in the office, punching numbers all day and being able to shoot. You know, the person who sits beside you with a toy blaster. We're sillier.
0: We're, 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 <laughs> when i when i was at yeah. cbs toys we had a doll called pretty cut and grow and we would pull the head off that doll and play soccer with her head <laughs> in, in the hallways
1: <laughs> oh that's brilliant yeah well, we've, we've got our own slime line as well so i think there's been a few stages where you do get slime stuck in here or stuck in <laughs> That as well, when you're leaving work, it's uh, I think Richard caught it. We're a bit we're a bit sillier in toys, aren't we? <laughs> yeah.
0: So you wear two hats in your in your role. Basically, you you handle e-commerce and you handle inventor relations. And I, and I want to start with e-commerce because I've obviously that has been such a huge area during the pandemic. And as we've seen that the growth in that, what do you see as the current trends in e-commerce over and above the fact that more people are going into it?
1: It's been a very rapid jump in the last 12 months, as I imagine a lot of people in the toy industry have experienced. Um, I think McKinsey came out with a report midway through last year dictating that e-commerce adoption in the States has jumped uh, 10 years ahead in the space of six months due to COVID-19. Um, which really shows for a lot of those companies who you know maybe were dabbling in e-commerce or didn't have it as very much in the forefront of their strategy, needed to very much place it front and foremost from the get-go uh, as they're moving forward. So I think that's really what we've seen now is is in e-commerce, you're needing to be a lot more integrated. I think there'll be a lot more of a push towards digital spend because of that whole idea of you can very much understand your customer journey with different metrics and bits like that as well. So I think that's really what we're going to see with the rise of e-commerce. You are going to see, you know, the retail partners still perform quite well because toy industry seems to be recession-proof or relatively recession-proof, which is great. But I think a lot of companies will need to adapt to make sure that they're having a bit more of a digital-first presence.
0: I know that many companies are doing direct-to-consumer. You guys have not gotten into that yet. But when you're working with an Amazon or a Walmart or any of the e-commerce partners that you have, what do you find are the challenges in terms of attracting consumers to those destinations?
1: I think the difficult thing is, is you have a different target market to your target user. Obviously with brick and mortar, you have kids walk past the store and they'll see the toy that they have seen on a YouTube video and it's very much an impromptu, you know, what we're seeing from the data is that kids are still the main influence in regards to why parents buy what they do in terms of toys. What's a bit different from the traffic space, I guess, is you're trying to target parents and grandparents who essentially are your target buyer, without capturing the eyes in the store of your target user. And I think that's a bit different as well, because you need to combine the idea of the pet, of the kids nagging at home, you know, wanting the toys that they like, um, versus trying to convert a parent in regards to actually converting. But it, it also does provide a lot of opportunities as well. And I think that's where you've seen a lot of the smaller toy retailers, because now they suddenly don't have to be placed at Walmart or Target. They can, if they have a smart online strategy, they can actually compete for the same keywords and compete for the same traffic online that, you know, larger companies like Hasbro or Mattel or ourselves or MGA, you know, would have in terms of um, that brick and mortar presence, which is, I think, probably the most exciting opportunity for small manufacturers moving forward.
0: Say a little bit more about the uh, opportunity for small manufacturers.
1: I guess it's the whole principle of, you know, with Facebook or with Google or with things such as Amazon with their own advertising platforms as well. You know, you can see smaller retail, smaller players who just emerge in the space, um, they can target the same keywords or the sort of the categories that we are too as well. So essentially, if they have a great product, um, even without a comprehensive marketing campaign, they can still sit there side by side on a search for plush, for example, as one of the larger brands. And I think that's really, you know, if there's a digital first um, strategy from some of these companies, is a really cool opportunity for them to get ahead and quickly.
2: I'm very interested in your perspective on, the e-commerce world, if, if you are, as an example, an American toy manufacturer, uh, well, Amazon is a really big mountain that blocks out the view. But where you're sitting and you're doing business internationally, who are the big e-commerce companies out there that,
1: that uh, you work with beyond Amazon? Um, well, I guess, you know, Amazon is arguably the main retail player across North America as well as Europe. Um, However, Mexico Mercado Libre um, is what we see as having more, actually more market share than Amazon in Mexico. And if you look across to Asia, you'll actually see players such as Rakuten in Japan, Kupang in Korea. From an e-commerce penetration point of view, China is actually much larger than the US in terms of online dollars spent. So I think for a lot of these companies, if you're an American manufacturer, for example, you need to be looking a lot more aggressively at your Tmall strategy.
2: And is the way you approach a Chinese e-commerce provider or a Korean one different than approaching uh, an Amazon as an example? Or is, is it pretty much the same issues are relevant in making a presentation and,
1: and getting listed? It'd be relatively similar to Amazon, different to your brick and mortar retailers because with online, you're not competing for shelf space, you're competing for eyes. So there's a bit of a different model there in regards to the larger buy-in you might get from brick and mortar. Um, It's also a case of when you're looking at e-commerce, the whole idea of localization around content is obviously a huge part, right? Right. Um, If you see grammatical errors as a customer on an Amazon US site, if you're buying as a US uh, consumer, you're probably less likely to go for that just because you feel a little bit uh, unsure if it's it's safe or things like that as well. So it's the same thing across different countries. You feel more, not obliged, but more in tuned to buy a product um, if you feel it's all localised and in your local language.
0: You mentioned content in passing, and I think that in the e commerce world, that is so important if you're trying to reach kids. You guys have done an amazing job with uh, rainbow corns. How important is it? And this is going to start to bridge the gap between your two hats. Uh, how important is it in developing a product to have a content strategy that can really work in the online world and drive people to e commerce?
1: Well, I, I guess, you know, when we look at how we build our content um, across our online presence, we do actually take a lot of the essentially the brand narrative and the product features and things like that are all actually taken from our our YouTube videos, our TV videos, um, et cetera, et cetera, just because it means that we can create a holistic brand narrative is what I like. Day, where everything from the kid viewing the product on a video all the way through to the parent buying the product on Amazon is still a synergized brand story. And I think that's the biggest thing is not looking at a multi-channel in regards to how are you reaching your customer, but understanding how it's omni-channel and all sort of piecing together to create a bit more of a holistic customer experience. And that's what we look to. So I, I, we actually work quite closely from a front-end point of view when it comes to e-commerce with our branding team to make sure that what we're presenting online uh, is also aligned with what they're presenting on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, there's a statistic I always like to quote, which is 60% of customers in the US start their product search on Amazon, which is crazy compared to, I think, 38% on Google. So what you're seeing is more customers in the US are actually starting their product search on Amazon as opposed to Google. Uh, And so that really, I think, pushes the idea of you need to have every dot lining up from a branding perspective to really drive home to your customers.
2: You know, it occurs to me that you, uh, of course, as we, as we have been discussing, um, you run the e commerce at Zuru, but you wear another hat, and that is you run Inventor in Relations. And to me, it's, those are very different roles. And um, I'm wondering when, when you move between disciplines, do you have any kind of sense of vertigo? <laughs> or is it pretty smooth as you move back and forth?
1: It's pretty chippy choppy. It's not like I sit there for one day and go and relations and the other day are e-commerce. Um, yeah, that's just sort of how Zuru is sort of built out. is a very nimble, everything moves very quickly and you're just trying to hold on by the coattails of the jacket. You know, that's how quickly we move. And actually, you know, funny enough, I thought that when I first started, um, when I had a, you know, both inventor relations and at the time, what was a project manager role for e-commerce, um, I thought that would be completely different. Funny enough, me working in a, in a retail role uh, on the commercial side of things, you can actually understand what works. Obviously, you know, there's people on the back end that understand the tooling and the design part of it and everything like that as well. But in regards to understanding what's working at retail versus what's being presented to me, there's actually a lot of room there because I can sit there and go, well, actually, you know, this isn't the same as this. It may be similar and it's on the sort of same trend, but actually this trend's actually not converting.
2: When you work with the inventor community, what do you think it's important for people to know when dealing with inventors, just in the broad
1: sense? At the end of the day, they're all very individual and unique people. Their ability to be creators stems from them being incredibly confident in who they are as individuals, and that's why I love working in the space. It's just I get to work with every new inventor that emails me as a completely different person. There's no sort of cut of the same cloth with inventors, and that's what I absolutely love.
2: When I first met Eddie Goldfarb, who uh, invented chattering teeth, it was like meeting Edison, except not. Chattering teeth are our light bulb. I mean, that's yes. a really uh, very important toy, and and so I think it's really just some of these people are really brilliant.
0: One of the things that's always been classic toy industry, and really going back to the the post World War II years, where you have companies like Wham and some of the some of the earlier stuff, they really emphasized their gut a lot. I think this is going to work. Now, they would go out, they would make something in their workshop and take it out to the beach and see if kids liked it. And if they did, they would make it. Not not exactly sophisticated research, but they, they made a lot of hits. How important is that gut? And, and what could somebody do to develop that if they were looking to enter the toy industry?
1: Funny enough, over the last year as well, I've actually seen from a, a few of the larger inventor groups, and I think that's something that you know, a, a lot of them are probably looking at as well, is they're doing the same kind of research that we are. It's not just a matter of what's working online, but I think... You know, I had an inventor pitch to me yesterday and they started talking about how the line can be built out and channel managed to sell certain things on Amazon at a higher price point and some things in a check lane. And I think that's sort of where it's moving to is there's obviously that gut feeling in regards to I think this is going to work and, you know, getting out in front of kids so they can play with it again, that sort of focus group element. But I think that increasing adoption of data and sort of understanding how the retail part of it works is becoming more of a demand for manufacturers such as ourselves. And I think that's sort of, you know, where it's sort of moving towards a little bit.
0: So if I come to you and I say, I have a, an idea for a product, Richard's favorite Hopping Bunnies uh, <laughs> that, keeps, that keeps coming up. This is this has become our generic go-to to made up toy, <laughs> our hypothetical toy. So if I come to you with Hopping Bunnies and you think, well, that's a, that's a wonderful toy, do I get a little bit more of your time if I tell you how I've figured out channel management and line, potential line extensions and how it could be in a blind bag and how it could be in a playset?
1: We're actually seeing that a lot more now. Our packaging elements and all the trimies and bits like that. That's really, you know, it's it's... We're getting slide decks and sizzles, but there's an emphasis on everything from the unboxing, th- uh, unboxing all the way through to how it can be sort of sh- uh, showed or displayed, or even even content looking like online as well. You know, that's sort of some of the things that are starting to come through.
2: The toy inventing community uh, has historically been a garage kind of inventor community. What they're doing has been historically been mechanical. And now we've come into this era, of course, in which a lot of digital aspects come into play and it's gotten a lot more sophisticated. Are you seeing more sophistication in what people bring you?
1: Yep. I I think so. You're seeing the injection of things such as compounds a lot more. Um, Obviously, just recognising how the market is. So not compounds by themselves, but how it integrates with dolls or in an overall toy. Because, you know, that's sort of where you're seeing consumption move to, I think, a little bit is repeat play. Just with regards to elements or trends of sustainability, making sure that if you're you're a parent buying a kid something, they are going to get more than two or three plays out of it as well. Um, But in addition to that, you know, we have our own youth electronic line. So we have a lot more sophistication coming through now from electronic point of view so you know we're coming with more inventors coming up to us and going hey we've got this new robotic uh, dinosaur for example but it can interact in six different ways with one motor You know, and and, and that's sort of i think the level that uh, some of the the toys coming through are now getting to as well
0: we're talking in general terms but is there a type of toy that somebody would say that's a zuru toy or that's something i should <laughs> i should get on the phone and? And Zach should see this idea. Is there something that defines your overall
1: brand? I think Fifi the flossing sloth <laughs> and <Bobby>, llama, <laughs> uh, probably. I suggest- love that. Fifi. <laughs> <laughs> if someone's got a, a weird animal that dances in an unusual way, I think they do come straight to Zuru first. <laughs> right.
0: Well, I I had more fun with uh, Boppy the booty shake and llama because it was just it was just that sort of. Sense of abandoned fun.
1: I, it's always something I like to say. If, if there's something really wacky and out the gate, you know, always come to Zuru because there's yeah, we're a company where we just might take a stab and, and do a really good job of it as well. You know, that's sort of where I think we've got our reputation is we're willing to take a stab and take a bullet, um, and that's sort of where our company's got to today, especially from a you know an adventure relationship point of view as well. I think a lot of the concepts that our company has been built on have very much come from the inventor community. So a bunch of balloons, RoboFish, um, you know, some of our Robo Alive line, our X-Shop Fastfill, the, you know, the I think it's the best-selling water blaster in the US now, um, is a license from an inventor in New Zealand that got it on his first try. You know, there's a lot of these random ones where we can just take a stab um, and seem to sort of resonate with the market.
0: But that was—I I just want to go tangentially on the on the X Shot Fastville because when I I first saw that in October, one of the October's in your L.A. showroom, and I turned to whomever I was there from Root with, and I said, "That's going to be the hit toy of next summer," because it was yeah. it was such a an elegant solution to a problem with uh, refilling a water gun because you can you, you refill it really quickly instead of like you have to turn the hose on your brother if he comes up on you while you're trying to fill yeah. the water gun
1: so, some of the some of the looks we got when i take the inventors around to sort of show them what we're working on and what we're looking for Just some of the faces when you first showed them that and you go it's a water blaster but you fill it up in one second by popping open the hole back and their face just drops and goes You've got to be kidding me. Like, that's just sort of one of those, like, how did I not think of this and how is this in the market for 20 to 30 years? Yeah.
2: We're a silly industry in a world that hadn't been so silly this year. So I, I want to uh, ask you a little bit about how you have overcome the obstacles uh, in uh, seeing new product. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you have you and your company have managed around this inability to physically see people?
1: Yes, I think on on the retail side of things, it's required a lot more due diligence from our branding team in regards to how we present and how we can sort of build out 3D sort of videos of actual samples and things like that, as opposed to being able to touch them. It's, It's not quite what you would get from being, you know, in an actual showroom, but I guess that's sort of what we've had to do. In regards to inventors, I think there's been a lot of work, you know, and great stuff by, you know, I think, you know, Mary Cousins and, and people like them who have basically built out uh, things such as People of Play. You know, we got quite involved with some of those virtual conferences as well. I know the team at Mojo Nation do a great job there as well. So that's sort of been how we've been trying to get in front of uh, some of the inventors that we don't normally work with, because of course your, your main partners or the ones you work with on a regular basis is often a bit of a call, but. We're not capturing, unfortunately, you know, normally you would have inventors walk past the booth and sort of hand you over your business card or you go and jump into a room and sort of have a look over what they've been working on. And unfortunately, just because there's no physical event this year, um, that sort of foot traffic is is been, you know, basically non-existent. So I think a lot of those events have been super important for companies like us being able to reach out and keeping a finger on the pulse working with new inventors.
0: One of the things about Zuru is... You're small, you're lean, you're fast. You do a lot of stuff that makes me laugh out loud. But you talk about bringing innovation to market in a new, smarter way. Can you tell me a little bit, what does that mean? And how how can toy companies themselves emulate that and be smarter in bringing innovation to the market?
1: Just to speak on that, I think it touches to that point of we're always looking for different data sets to either validate or... I guess, dismiss, you know, different ideas that we're bringing to market. So it's around bringing the sort of old principles in regards to focus groups, you know, what's worked in the past, what are we seeing from, you know, kids that we're talking to and in the market from our retail partners in regards to what's working. Um, but then bringing that fresh injection of what seems to be trending on on Google, on YouTube, um, how is that benchmarked against other sort of key brands that are in the space, um, looking online at sort of top sellers lists and things like that being smart around what can we target and sort of validating that with different data sets as well that we've utilized internally um, to understand, you know, where to place specific emphasis on certain brands and specific items when bringing them to market. And if we bring them to market at all, based on some of the new findings that come through, because the way that we see it is kids, their preferences change every six months to a year, but recognizing how engaged they can be with tablets, you know, the new ways that companies such as ourselves can target, you know, children with different media, with different content, et cetera, et cetera, means that I think that that sheer pace in regards to adoption and trends changing is happening quicker than ever. So if you're not rapidly continuously trying to look at different data sets and look at, is my item still going to be relevant in six months when it does come to market? I think companies like us really need to have that finger on the pulse in order to be successful. And that's where I think, you know, company like Zuru has really got ahead is we are very nimble uh, and we do move fast. We are a very young team and that's sort of how we've got to I think, where we are, where we have today.
2: Zach, you know, you are a millennial, I believe. You're a digital native. A group is very important to the toy industry uh, because we are, in essence, a, uh, industrial age industry. We came out of the 19th century. And so I'm interested in uh, your perception of some of the classic toys, like a Rubik's Cube or a Viewmaster, uh, a hula hoop, that were pre-digital age toys. And they were hot and they have become classics. If a hula hoop was to hit the market for the first time in 2021, you think it's a different outcome or do you think it's going to work no matter when it comes out?
1: Funny enough, I was actually thinking about this the other day when I've, you know, we've been you know, hunting out a certain couple of categories. And the reason those categories are so attractive is because they've had evergreen properties in them for such a long time. You look at your monopolies and your jingers and stuff like that. And I was asking myself the same question, you know, if I seen something like that come across my plate today, would I push it through and try to get it licensed? And, you know, I'm three or four years into the toy industry. I'm on the lower end of being a millennial borderline Gen Z. Um, so it is sort of that fresh eyes approach and I'm not actually too sure. I don't think if a hula hoop was presented to me today, I don't think I would probably look at licensing. And I think the allure of that comes from a younger generation where it was just very fun at the time. And it was a bit of a a simple outdoor thing. I think a lot of these, you know, maybe I'm not too sure about Rubik's cube, but to speak to maybe the hula hoop, it probably wouldn't get picked up. I think by a lot of larger companies, if it was showed this time around.
0: I think the thing yeah. that both the hula hoop and Rubik's Cube have in common is that they became cultural phenomena and that they they made that leap from something the kids were playing with at the beach or something to something that became part of the culture. It represented this sort of freewheeling new concept of the teenager in the 50s. And Rubik's Cube became associated with how smart is your kid? So whenever right. you, whenever you, no seriously, but so and I hate whenever, those kids. Whenever you, <laughs> whatever.
1: I can you, never get the chatter. I can never get the chatter rings going. Oh, those things you said. No, no,
0: no. Whenever you have something that transcends the toy industry and jumps into that cultural phenomenon area, it's going to have a different trajectory and a different history than something that you look at and you would. If I can see you saying. Well, wait a minute. You, it's it's a plastic ring and I put it around mm. my waist and I do this. And why is that fun? And but, I, I, I could see why somebody today would would, would ask that.
2: Well, you know, the, the 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 Rubik's Cube of the 19th century, believe it or not, in the 1890s, and it was red hot was those little flat number puzzles. The ones where you push the little pieces around. Yep. Yep. That was huge. Huge. Yep. Uh, today, uh, not so much. I think it's, it's,
1: I think it's the idea of you know if you had a Furby and a Hatchmore put in front of you and you were a kid this day and age, it's it's again like which one would you probably go for if you had no nostalgic tie to it, right? Right. i'm not too sure I, I know personally i might go for a hatchimal because of the, the level of interactivity and and the realistic um cracking of the egg as well
0: that's the thing about toys is they really always reflect their culture and i was actually having this conversation with somebody else today about trying to revitalize toys and ip from the 70s and 80s you have yep. to prove yourself all over again because those kids weren't here and no. and, right. and it's just like coming from a standing start so when I look at something like your Rainbow Corns, which I think is insane and I mean that in a good way, it's like how do we how do we jam all this stuff into a great big egg and then it's <laughs> you know because it's very much the play pattern of of today yep. and plus it's classic toys. So I think that that one of the things you guys do do very well is you understand what the Zeitgeist is and how to direct toys against that.
1: I think that captures it perfectly. It's just a matter of understanding sort of some of the evergreen properties, but injecting enough newness in it where it sort of appeals across the board and as well as, you know, it can stay around for a little bit longer than six months as well.
0: All right, Zach, we're going to ask you the question that we ask everybody here on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret.
1: I think a cool secret would actually be one of the origins of one of our items actually. So I X shop Fastfill uh water blaster was actually licensed off an an inventor who built a yeah, I guess a drop in bucket water blaster on his first try as a Kiwi guy with his family uh from North Island. It was his first try in inventing uh and managed to make an item that essentially is now turned into one of the best selling water blasters in the world. So <laughs> it does show that you can get it on your first time, right?
0: I think it does encourage people to be daring. And guess what? Zach's going to listen to you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think it it says something else too. It, It just really shows you that great inventions can come from anywhere.
1: Yep, yeah, and that's you know, that's what companies like us are always looking for, right, is, is just as likely that an invention is going to come from you know, one of the larger inventor groups as much as it is going to come from someone who tries it on their first time who's doing it as a part-time job. He probably thinks it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> just quit after the first go, 100% success rate, right? <laughs> about- so, Zach, you
0: guys have a special email address that people can use if they want to get in touch with you. You guys are looking at actively looking for submissions right now how do people get in touch with you and uh, hopefully get some time to show you what they're what they're creating?
1: So you can either reach out to us directly at inventors@ Zuru.com or you can go through our website which has a bit more information on previous case studies from us in regards to you know what we've licensed and how it's been successful in the past uh, and you can also make submissions through there that will go through to the same location.
0: Zach Pentecost, Senior E-Commerce Manager from Zuru, thank you so much for this entertaining and insightful conversation. We really appreciate your spending the time with us. Uh, Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Richard. Really enjoyed my time here. Thank you very much.
0: Great having you. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that Richard and I call the end cap where we toss around some ideas that are getting a little traction in the toy industry right now. And one of them is called social commerce. And Richard, you wrote an article about this. And I was fascinated because I think that this is going to be an increasingly dominant mode of driving sales. We're already seeing in-app purchases, we're seeing things like Roblox, we're seeing changes in how people are working with TikTok creators in terms of providing them a commission on what is sold through their video. So rather than paying somebody a whole bunch of money upfront to create a video, they're actually able to track how many videos went through to sales. We're even seeing this in editorial where online media outlets are having a link to where you can purchase immediately. So it's really generating a lot of revenue. And in your article, you point out that more than 52% of the sales in China were social commerce, as you call it. What do you think the implications are?
2: Eek. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me let me start by saying that, Social commerce uh, really includes anything that's sold in the, the conventional, I, I believe, e-commerce manner, but it also includes e-commerce that is funneled through social networks. So those social networks, uh, maybe you're were, you were following an influencer and there's a link to uh, a particular product, or even if you're looking at some entertainment and you like the looks of a product, that's part of the entertainment, you could order it. And it, it seems that China is really the leader and has been the leader in, in, in digital commerce. China was over 50%. They were 52% of uh, retail sales this year came from uh, social commerce. In the United States, it was 15%, one five. This is a pretty, I, I think, big, big difference. In the number two country, South Korea was 28.9. So, so nobody's close to China right now. So, Chris, I, I think there's a couple discussions here. One, I would very much like to hear your thoughts on social commerce and what we may be seeing in the United States. And then I would like to talk a little bit about what happens if the United States gets over 50 percent of digital commerce.
0: I think the big part of social commerce is how people are engaging with brands. So if I see something in my feed on Instagram or Facebook, I may very well be interested in that, and I might be more likely to click through. But it's not just social commerce. There are new technologies that will allow you to be watching a streaming show and click on your remote and have that either purchased right then or added to a wish list. So... It really is all about deeper, broader, and more personal engagement with brands as people are consuming content. So I do think that this is a huge wave of the future, and especially if you can precisely target who you're talking to.
2: You know, Chris, I'm thinking about that CEO who is a 20th century person, essentially. He grew up, came of age in the 20th century learned business in the 20th century, and did their advertising pretty much by either magazines or buying TV time. And I am struck by how complex marketing and advertising is becoming between all the many, many social networks and then social commerce. I think it's highly intimidating unless you really have a very strong handle on what is happening in the moment in terms of technology and marketing which means uh, uh, people who do, I think, really have an important role to play in guiding CEOs and leaders into this really very brave new world of social commerce.
0: You bring up a really interesting point, which is that the models are changing. You cannot use a TV model in your digital strategy. It just doesn't work. The great thing about digital is you can really target specific audiences very clearly. Now, I know if you're talking about toys and you're advertising to children, you can't use that IP-based information, but you can use very highly targeted contextual advertising. And I think that there are companies that are doing a great job of analyzing, looking at the content out there, finding the audiences. And what I talk about a lot is the mass niche, which means most products have a niche audience, but since they're global, there's a whole lot of them out there. So the strategy is going to be talking to those people who are most likely to be converted into purchasers or specifiers.
2: Chris, the thing that struck me and why I said eek, <laughs> at, and I don't I really say eek, is what happens if or maybe when the United States exceeds 50 percent? Of retail sales coming through e-commerce, uh, is that a not a game changer, but is that a game ender for a lot of bricks and mortar commerce?
0: I'm not sure if it's a game ender per se, but it's definitely something that is rewriting how retail is going to be done. We're moving towards omni-channel retailing, which means you can buy stuff almost anywhere, uh, whether it's in social commerce on Facebook, at the store. And I think brands are going to have to learn how to address their consumers and find the best channel for a specific brand. There's been lots of marketing that's been designed to drive people into stores, but at the same time, there are certain things that are easier to buy online going forward people are going to have to really look at their merchandising strategies in the totality of all the places where they intersect with consumers and where consumers are likely to buy and that's going to influence all kinds of budgets it's going to influence advertising and it's going to influence what the conversion rates and conversion costs are so we're just going to have to see how this continues to evolve. I don't think bricks and mortar stores are going anywhere because I think when we come back from the pandemic, people are gonna be eager to be out and shopping. And I think that's going to be important, but where it's going to have an impact is on that impulse buy. I see something on TikTok and I want it now.
2: I I think Chris, your your points are well taken. Uh, My only concern is uh, a bricks and mortar retailer doesn't need to lose all its business. It really just needs to lose enough (laughs) That support the infrastructure. And if we're over 50%, even with the omni-channel retailing, I think there's folks that are not going to be able to keep the doors open. So I think this is something that uh, we probably need to better understand what's happening in China. Uh, I mean, it's a very different market than the U.S. market. We don't want to make direct comparisons. But there is some uh, sense of the future there in terms of e-commerce. So uh, I think you and I are going to spend a little time maybe talking to some of our friends in China and find out what is this all about.
0: And I think the one bright spot in all of this is, if you recall, when we talked to Joe Hall of Toys R Us in China and Hong Kong, she was talking about the family trip to the Toys R Us store was part of their Sunday ritual. So I don't think that's going to go anywhere, and I think that's an opportunity, but it means that retailers are going to have to aggressively look at how they expand their e-commerce and their social commerce efforts.
2: Retailers, probably no matter who they are, are, are going to have to figure out how they're going to fit into this new world. And what their business model is going to be, and maybe even thinking beyond omni-channel, because uh, we are approaching what is truly the twenty-first century. Chris, you know, I was thinking when I can remember New Year's Eve in two thousand, and uh, you know, going from nineteen ninety-nine to two thousand. I thought the next day, well, it feels the same. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> We're not, we're not flying around in rocket ships, you know. And, and But maybe what we really are now is this is the 21st century. And it's not like business was in the 20th century. And it's going to call for really 21st century thinking.
0: I think that's really true. And I love talking and thinking about this stuff here on the Playground Podcast. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, and my cohort and co-host Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And we'll see you next time.